Hello and welcome to this podcast hosted by the Centre for Perioperative Care entitled Patient Safety, How Lessons Learned in Theatre Can Be Transferred to the Ward. My name is David Selwyn and I'm the Director of the Centre for Perioperative Care and I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Gill, Lucas de Carvalho, Jeremy Hunter, who are going to uh, explore this topic over the next 20 minutes or so. The title and this topic has come from uh, a recent uh, winning presentation from the Patient Safety Imperative Practice Seminar, where we had around 37 or 40 abstracts submitted, and we shortlisted down to have four verbal presentations on the day. And Simon, Jeremy and Lucas's presentation is going to form the subject of a uh, newsletter that uh, CPOT will release in the near future. So if I can just turn to the three of you and just get you to introduce yourselves. Simon, would you like to go first? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, hello everyone. Um, so my name's Simon Gill. I'm an ACCS anaesthetics trainee down in Cornwall. And then Jeremy, I'm going to shorten that to Jez, uh, if that's all right with you. And if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. My name's Jez Hunter. I'm an ST7 in anaesthetics and intensive care medicine, also down in Cornwall. And then Lucas. Um, hi, thanks for having me. I'm Lucas. I'm, I'm also a trainee I'm down in Cornwall. I'm a CT1 in ACCS anaesthetics. Excellent. Okay, so just so uh, our listeners can understand uh, this this project. Am I right in understanding, Jez, that th this was your idea originally and then uh, you needed some help to take this forward? That's right. So originally um, I had to find something to keep myself interested during my extra year in medicine um, as a dual trainee. I wasn't an ACC, ACCS trainee. Um, and I found myself as an ST6 working on the medical wards and uh, wanted to take a little bit of anaesthetics with me and leave it there and uh, decided to see whether there was value in looking at some of the safety coaches that we developed on the wards, uh, developed within surgery, uh, to see whether they would be compatible with, uh, with, with um, the wards. And so that was the idea, but um, that was only the, the smaller part of the story. Uh, essentially, uh, this led to a year-long project and along the way, I managed to find uh, uh, two individuals who are far more intelligent and uh, harder working than me, who picked it up, pushed it forward and took it into uh, into a much more impressive destination than I ever could have got it on my own. <laughs> Excellent. OK. And Simon, you you gave the presentation at the, uh, uh, at the, at the meeting. So do you want to just uh, uh, give a bit of background to the project and maybe summarise uh, what you did and what you found? Uh, yeah, of course. So I guess like all good projects, there's kind of a, a beginning to the story. And the, the trigger for this one was um, a CQC spot notification to the hospital after a series of never events happened in theatre that kind of required there to be an improvement in general theatre safety culture. And then kind of scratching below the surface a little bit, it turns out that one of these incidents was in a cath lab with a retained wire and it moved the spotlight kind of to the medical wards a little bit where when you started looking at the kind of procedures that happened there's an inherent safety culture in theatre practice which has kind of grown over the years to 
be so in, kind of ingrained I don't think we really notice it's there but when you kind of look at how things happen elsewhere in the hospital especially in busy acute wards um, that hasn't really seeped over yet so this the mainstay of this project then was to try and take some of that inherent safety culture and see how well it fit elsewhere um, so we looked at doing this would be invasive procedures in acute medicine just because again that's where Jez was so we defined the invasive procedures as kind of anything that involved making a cut to gain or a hole to gain access within a patient's body initially the thought process would be these would be very much based around the who checklists that we use in theatres but again very quickly it became apparent that just medical wards are just fundamentally different places and the one-size-fits-all approach just wouldn't work there was their own unique barriers and challenges to implementing things like this and I'm sure we'll go into more detail but little things like often these aren't sterile environments you're doing the procedures at the bedside there's not a dedicated staff not dedicated nurses and scrub nurses and runners there's a high turnover of staff there's not one-to-one -one care all of these things that who and theatres just take for granted just aren't there so to do this we kind of took a much more multimodal approach using the who checklist as kind of a core but then adapted out to include other things like staff training governance documentation quick look at environment and a few more bits which i'm sure again i'm sure we'll go into detail of so it was a, a long project but loosely um after 12 months after it's implemented um there were no more critical incidents which is obviously a good win and uh, it was generally quite well received by clinicians and kind of allied health professionals involved with it and it's kind of left with an ongoing review process with kind of annual rolling audits and governance that encourages future learning and development so jess what what was what was the basis of the work that you under undertook in this this audit project so essentially it was um, taking the surgical safety culture and applying it to the medical wards and um, what this involved was a number of different domains and these included um, starting with policy and governance moving through a, a rewrite of um, safety critical documentation standardization of consents and patient information uh, providing education and training to um, the operators of these invasive procedures, looking at the equipment and consumable used, and finally the implementation of safety critical checklists. That's great. And and uh, Simon, did you did you want to build on that at all, or bring in other aspects of that? Um, yeah, of course. So kind of going through each of those those points one at a time, I guess is probably the easiest way of doing it. So projects like these have obviously there's lots of documentation involved um the documentation section of this was more um kind of the behind the scenes documentation stuff so making sure that not only was all the procedural documentation formalized but it expanded to include that we made sure there was um registered kept of um who was competent to do the procedures um who was deemed competent to train others and evaluate others for doing the procedures um making sure that there was a robust enough register of who had attended training um and that there was a consumable sign in sign out register so we know who was accessing kit and to make sure that the people who were going through these procedures were the people that were supposed to be doing it these obviously 
potentially quite big documents they were made sure they were held by kind of senior nurses on the ward and kind of senior consultants using um projects it kind of leads a little bit onto the kind of patient information standardization side of the documentation so the second point consent and information uh, there are procedure specific kind of pre-populated consent forms and information packs that were created and this was really to ensure that every patient no matter who was doing the procedure got exactly the same information you knew that um, a newly qualified in the procedure SHA who was maybe doing their first independent one would be giving the same information the same um, risk benefit so that a patient was making the same informed consent choices as a consultant who or a senior trainee who'd been doing the procedure for years um, then included in that was kind of the post-procedural information what the patient could expect afterwards what to look out for and that kind of matched alongside with the post-procedure care documentation for nursing staff to help guide how they should care for um, patients afterwards there was a big governance part of this so development of the local um, policy is fundamental what this project was but also in setting up the annual rolling audit process which um, Lucas will talk about a bit I think later on um, and making sure there was a robust reporting systems through Daytex and everything was fed back appropriately to departmental governance meetings to ensure both that standards are maintained but also can be developed and kind of learning can can carry on after this. I think we say the word checklist quite a lot but it's important to highlight that although this was based around checklists um, it, it, they definitely grew to be more than that so although there was a kind of standard sign-in timeout sign-out thing that you kind of would expect from a procedural checklist it grew to be adapted for single operator ward-based things so um, the specific kind of pre-procedure information to document is this procedure even indicated what's happened what other contraindications have you thought about them um, what pre-procedure investigations do you need what kit do you need and where can you find that kit um, and then post-procedure care handover and instructions for kind of ward-based staff um, we've kind of alluded that one of the issues with doing this on medical wards as opposed to theatres is the environment is often unpredictable so environment and equipment was a big part of this and this looked at um, identifying and trying to maintain uh, specific procedure rooms that were um, designed to have all the kit that you would need for any one procedure to hand um, and also any equipment you need for complications of procedure easily accessible. Um, equipment packs were created um, with the rest restricted um, access to only competent users and that in hand went with a new source controlled system um, which essentially in its basis form was a locked cupboard with a key held by a head nurse but essentially what you're trying to do is mean that the only the people who you know can perform these procedures have access to the kit they need to do it just as another kind of safety precaution in there and then I guess and the other key the final point then is education and training so in saying you need to be a competent clinician to uh, to perform these procedures we need to make sure people are trained appropriately so creating a um a, a syllabus to training having um sim based training sessions that you knew people would be having the training they would be taught to do the procedure the right way the first time having um, logbooks of cases with kind of formalized dops base sign offs before people could individually go in as independent practitioners wow so a huge amount of work there so so jess uh... 
how how long did it take you to work through all of that to understand all of those uh, uh, pillars of what you needed to change or all of those uh, uh, aspects where you needed to change before you even started the data collection? Well, um, it took about um, three months to understand the scope of the project, about three months to produce the procedures, um, about three months to remind people what the procedures were, and then about three months to audit it. Fantastic. You decided to focus on on four procedures uh, that were occurring on the on the wards outside of the theatre, and I just wondered how you chose those four procedures. Yeah, so as, uh, as Sims already said, that uh, an invasive procedure is one that involves making a hole or cut inside a patient's body in order to gain access. And then the policies which are defined within the NAPSIPS policy, which was produced back in 2015, they gave examples like taking a biopsy or tissue sampling. Um, what we decided to do was to look at two main attributes. The first one was um, the potential um, to leave a foreign body inside a patient. So, uh, for instance, central venous catheter or midline definitely picked, uh, definitely uh, met that criteria. And the second one was that if a wrong side or wrong indication procedure had the potential to cause serious harm to a patient, um, and that's how we picked up the five. And then, um, and then because plural procedures were mainly undertaken by um, the respiratory team, we really focused on four. And these included lumbar punctures, abdominal paracentesis, joint aspiration and insertion of central venous catheters and midlines. And that's how we got to where we were. And interestingly enough, it was those four procedures that garnered the most Datex instance, Datex are our um, instant reporting system, and also the highest level of complaints about procedures. And it also meant that we could quite confidently discount um, other procedures that some may feel meet the definition of an invasive procedure, such as cannulation or venipuncture. Well, clearly they don't possess the one of those two attributes and therefore they didn't need to be um, uh, they didn't need to be dealt with in the same way that we were going to um, deal with the, the five that we found and ultimately four that we implemented. OK, and that's really clear. And and then you, you, you mentioned the sort of the NAPSITS guidance. So NAPSITS has been around, as you described, for quite a long period of time. And then there's the development of a local uh, 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 guidelines for the LOCSIPS. And, and I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on why these areas weren't using NAPSITS or LOCSIPS when you first started this. I, I think it's because the definition of an invasive procedure is frightening. And if you apply it to the word of the definition, then almost everything you, you do with a needle would come underneath that definition. And therefore it was definitely put in the box as way too difficult to even tackle. And there were many, many unforeseen consequences even beginning to unpackage that process. Um, but actually, once we defined it a bit clearer, um, we realised that actually um, it was the spirit of, uh, of NATSIPS, not necessarily the literal application of the definition. And, and also, the medical wards are very different. They're mainly, as, as Sim has already mentioned, they're mainly single operator ward based procedures. And that was ne never really the target of NATSIPS. 
Um, but we felt that actually there was real benefit in picking up some of the um, dimensions of the uh, of, of the standards and place them onto the medical ward. So it wasn't about trying to find um, a level of compliance. It was actually about identifying areas of best practice and lifting them up and taking them into the medical wards and seeing whether that was possible. Yeah, so this all came from, as you described, a sort of CQC warning notice. Were you, uh, as trainees working in the organisation, were you aware of the, the the number of never events up until that time? Was this something that uh, uh, you consciously thought there's something we can do about this, or was this just a, a, a bolt from the blue that came to you? I think it was a bit a bit mixed. So um, some of the the never events didn't really happen in the kind of core acute surgical parts of the hospital some of them were like dermatology based removing wrong site lesions um the couple that did happen within areas we worked i think we were definitely aware of they kind of filtered through the datex and governance things to, to get to us um and i guess like with all things when you kind of hear the the events that lead, lead up to the never event and you kind of know the people involved, you can kind of see it in a quite an a, a understandable way. You can see how it happens. You can see how the human factors played a role. And you, there is a degree of um, empathy as to the process. And you can kind of see that without really robust um, checklisting and safety culture, it could happen to anyone a lot of the time. Yeah. So we, I think, yes, we were aware um, how worried we were because we didn't know necessarily how much was happening around the hospital. So then when there was a, a warning notice that actually quite a lot had happened in a short time, I think that did come out of the blue a little bit. OK, and and and, you know, from my point of view, certainly never events are something that continue to not live up to their name. And certainly within my organisation, uh, we have a number of uh, uh, never events that have occurred outside of the operating theatre, which is why this I think this work is so interesting, uh, because I suspect that's occurring in, in, in many organisations. And I think you've picked up on perhaps some of those themes uh, in terms of the, 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 the single operator, uh, the ward impact, uh, something around the uh, uh, terminology perhaps of the procedures. And then maybe there's something there that you were just describing, Simon, about the thinking differently and thinking more structured uh, in a, a different way and using checklists. So so if I maybe come back to you, Lucas, and, and, and um, just ask you, uh, so part of this was you sort of, you took these uh, procedures, you, you thought there was a bit of a problem, and then you started to standardise and do, and say, this is what we're going to do for all of these procedures. Is, is, that, is that how you sort of took this forward? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I was, um... I came on to acute medicine as, as part of my um, rotation, uh, part of my ACS training, and um, part of that is doing an audit, obviously. And um, I canvassed my um, audit lead in my department, and um, they introduced me to the brilliant Jez Hunter, and um, he sort of introduced me to what was going on at the time, and um, regarding all this and he already <clears throat> developed the uh, with others the LOCSIPS standards uh, for acute medicine and that already been um, implemented at the start of um, the year 2021 and um, he sort of canvassed me to to try and 
see whether we'd made an impact um, around this. And um, so that's where that's the stage that I got involved in, um, in yeah, auditing uh, the impact this had had. Yeah. That's great. And and Jess, you, so you in terms of the developing the Loxis, there were a few domains that you're looking at to to take this forward. Do you want to just uh, perhaps talk us through uh, some of those? Sure. So um, initially uh, we needed to start from the policy and that made sense. Um, and uh, so uh, that then led to um, the go uh, overall governance of the process. We then had to look at documentation and bearing in mind some of these invasive procedures were spread out amongst different departments. So if you take um, uh, uh, lumbar punctures as an example, um, there are not only acute medics providing lumbar punctures on the acute medicine wards, you've also got anaesthetists who undertake it under sedation, but you've also got neurologists who might come in and undertake um, that particular invasive procedure. So, um, so the documentation side and harmonising it was uh, was another domain. Um, looking at consent and information, so providing standardised consent forms and standardising patient information leaflets was uh, a further domain. Um, and then we looked at, um, at the consumable stores and resources required to perform these procedures safely, and that led into um, the provision of um, locations to undertake them as well, procedural rooms. Um, and then finally, the audit process, which is where uh, Lucas joined us and uh, and and managed to um, breathe more energy into the project when the rest of us were flagging. <laughs> and and so, what did you um, what did you find were the sort of challenges or the uh, I guess practicalities of developing some of these processes on the ground? Did you get much resistance from the from the team? Um, well, interestingly enough, um, the acute medical team, including the consultant body, were very positive about the changes um, and the allied, uh, allied health uh, professional colleagues were also very positive about the changes. I mean, the, the, the sheer size of the project was a, uh, was a daunting challenge. Bearing in mind our acute medicine unit rotates 100 junior doctors, over 100 junior doctors every four months. And we were trying to implement a system that would uh, provide them with effective training. I mean, there were three um, uh, three set points within that process, um, a skills lab training session, a supervised um, direct observation of procedure, and then an assessed direct observation of procedure. And then providing uh, some kind of administrative support to oversee that whole process. That that was extremely challenging, and uh, we quickly identified the fact that we needed um, a, a clinically trained individual to actually oversee that process, or else whatever um, changes that we made would quickly be lost during the next rotation, just because the data points were changing so quickly. Um, uh, the other challenge that we found was in integrating the standards that we produced with other departments. And as I said, um, you know, I've already given the example of neurologists and, um, and uh, anaesthetists, but we also had vascular access nurses coming in and other allied healthcare professionals providing invasive procedure support to the acute medical unit. 
And, and that was tricky because um, under the governance, there were normally numerous amounts of policies that had been written by different um, departments. And in order to actually main, make a change that influenced all of those different policies, we had to sort of gain multiple committee consensus. And that was just frustrating, but also extremely inefficient. Um, the fourth challenge was about the control of stores. There's a real tension between these high demand consumables um, uh, providing accessibility, but also providing a level of control so it's not a free for all. Um, and we found actually that trying to do that during COVID surge was really challenging and actually had to be abandoned at one point. And it's something, well, I mean, we've looked at a whole host of different systems uh, to provide better control over our consumables for invasive procedures. But it is very, very difficult, especially when you're giving access to hundreds of people um, uh, uh, and, and also expecting these procedures to be done quickly and efficiently. Um, and then finally, um, the, uh, the, the, the final problem really was once we'd identified a safe space on our same day medical assessment unit to undertake these invasive procedures, trying to protect it from it becoming just another ward bed was almost impossible. So we'd often come in having spent a lot of time making sure that the room was clean and met the standards uh, that are um, defined in the national safety um, uh, document. Uh, to find a patient um, that had been admitted in there by an overzealous site coordinator. So um, that took um, that took real leadership and um, and and we needed um, we needed to have an understanding from the consultant body how important it was to to protect these resources, uh, which we ultimately got, but it, it wasn't plain sailing. Yeah, <laughs> lots, lots to learn in there. Lots of good, good examples, uh, uh, I guess. And 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 one of the again, one of the sort of uh, things that uh, uh, seems to be coming out quite strongly in that is that we've developed uh, uh, in our organisations such complicated systems and processes that actually trying to harness them and put some standardization back into them, particularly when it's multi-process, multi-professional and multi-specialty is, is really difficult. And that's, uh, I guess, that sort of a, uh, aligns a bit with what we're trying to do with the whole perioperative care pathway to, to sort of try and uh, uh, break down some of these barriers and redesign it in a, in a uh, more structured way that actually works for the patients. Jess, did you want to come back there? Yeah, and it, I was going to say, interestingly, um, we we did get pushback from a quarter that we weren't expecting, which was our safer surgery team. We thought they'd be del delighted that we were taking um, uh, the, effectively um, their safety culture into the medical wards. But in actual fact, and understandably now, um, it, it was um, that they were concerned that we were diluting the message of the WHO safer surgery system because our checklists weren't just the WHO um, sign in, time out, and time uh, time time out and uh, sign out system. They were a single document that provided um, it, uh, not just that, but also um, things like um, um, indications for the procedure, contraindications, the types of stores that you would need, because invariably you'd end up having to go to a number of different store cupboards. So it was a way of providing a single sheet that streamlined the process. And the Safer Surgery team found that uh, that was probably diluting the message. Um, and uh, and in the end, the way we dealt with that was to actually remove reference to the WHO checklist.
but it was interesting that resistance came from uh, from an area that we thought would be supportive. Um, uh, uh, but um, but the, the issues that they had with with uh, uh, the direction our direction of travel were probably fair but unexpected. Yeah. And, and Simon, if I come to you, just in terms of the, the findings of this, so you mentioned uh, <laughs> that when you when you instituted this within your organisation, uh, you didn't see any uh, never events during the time of the audit. What, what were some of the other findings that you, you managed to uh, capture? Um, I may pass that one over to Likas actually, because he was a big driving force for that audit and could probably um, give it more, give the answer more justice than I can. Lucas, what, <laughs> you, you you mentioned that uh, one of the findings of this audit were that uh, it, you you managed to and uh, not see any further never events on the um, medical wards. What what else did you find? Yeah, sure. So uh, this was the first cycle since um, its implementation, and uh, you know just keeping that in mind. Um, still, we found evidence definitely of a positive impact um, on the safety culture around invasive procedures on the acute medical wards. Um, I think that was particularly um, the checklists we found were really well used, really well utilised, um, and you know that was associated with a reduction in the adverse events reported, which I think was definitely our our main concern. There were still some areas to, you know, continue improvement, um, definitely. So the main chunk of my audit um, was looking at the checklist. It's, you know, the most commonly done, um, l lumbar punctures were the most commonly done invasive procedure. Um, so that's what I uh, focused on. 306 months uh, was the number that, that I, I discovered. Um, the majority of these were done for headaches or investigating um, subarachnoid um, hemorrhages and um, I took a snapshot requested 60 of these notes and from that I found that 93% um, of these cases of these procedures had a documented checklist completed which is brilliant. A small proportion of um, people were still uh, of professionals were still confused um, they were still using the old checklist that we had um, from years past and uh, I think that was because that you know that was included in the old packs that we had and so one thing we've done to improve is uh, remove those so that people are just using the new checklists um, and uh, another thing uh, I discovered from uh, talking to users uh, of you know of, of, of the checklist was uh, they were finding it difficult to get hold of it um, on the internet and you know that's a very small uh, thing uh, to change but uh, makes a big difference, you know, improving compliance and accessibility. Um, and what Jess might not have mentioned already is that alongside these checklists, we also had very well written consent forms um, that were specific to each procedure and a patient leaflet that we could then give um, to the patients, um, uh, which, was, which is so uh, useful for um, trainees specifically, who perhaps are, you know, just you know they've done a few but uh, it's great to have that aid memoir to, to make sure they're not missing anything. Uh, another thing uh, we found from the audit cycle um, was training. Um, as mentioned already uh, we identified a real need for regular standardised training around these invasive procedures in collaboration with the postgraduate centre of course and the acute medical department. 
but the sheer number of trainees and juniors uh, of all different relative experience passing through the unit makes this a real challenge. And going forward, you know, we've got plans for a weekly uh, session led by one of the clinical fellows in the department uh, to, real, to really champion um, you know, good training uh, around these procedures uh, with uh, training dummies. And you know, Jess might also want to add, um, but we, we're also planning to make sure that the trainers, uh, those who are already very competent um, in these procedures, uh, uh, are up to date uh, and supported uh, in knowing what the, you know, the current safety standards are and what we expect as a result of um, LOCSIPs. Um, and then a couple of other things that we've already touched on, including stores, um, that definitely needs a rethink how we look at that and maintaining an up to date list of those that um, can do these procedures so that nurses can, you know, or juniors and not competent can turn to, you know, a sheet on the wall in the in the office and say, oh, this person's on, they can do that or they can train me up um, and keeping that updated is really important. So in general, um, David, um, you know, a real positive impact um, yeah. so far, but definitely um, important to keep uh, the, mem the momentum up. Yeah, and did, did you ask any of your patients for how they sort of felt? Did they feel safer or uh, uh, were they more assured at all? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think going forward, you know, the, the, the repeated cycle of this audit uh, this year um, could include that and we could canvas um, patients you know that might need a bit more time but I, th I think that's a really uh, important point um, to see you know that you know the end goal is you know patients feel safer um, regarding these procedures and um, not not just you know cold hard evidence whether we've not you know made any harm but and um, that we're making them feel safer sorry Jess yeah. did you want to add something yeah, so I was going to say that actually um, uh, there were numerous um, complaints about um, often about the conduct of LPs. Um, and that was probably because LPs were being undertaken on patients by very junior doctors who wanted to get various competencies signed off. One of the unforeseen consequences of implementing this much tighter training system was that uh, that, system, that that process went away. And so in reviewing the complaints um, in the 12 months following the implementation of the new system, um, they almost disappeared. So I think the feedback wasn't necessarily positive, but it was certainly less negative. Oh, that's interesting. And and I think Lucas mentioned it. So so uh, one of the great things about QI projects or audit is, is 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 a snapshot and some of it is about then making a change and seeing what the impact is. So do, am I right in saying that you're going to continue this work, uh, Lucas, or, or you're going to run the, the cycle again? Because this is presumably your first cycle that you've got the, the outputs from. Yes, that's that's definitely the plan, you know. We're, we're all very keen to keep to see this, um, you know, keeping momentum, as I said, and um, we're definitely going to need to recruit some more people to the to the team and the committee to to keep it going and passing the baton on, um, you know, uh, to bring some fresh energy to this uh, and to share the passion for for safety um, in, the, in the department. So, yeah, that's definitely the plan later this year um, to keep the um, audit cycle going. And I'm sure, you know, the, the the next um the next uh, members of the team would 
you know, to this would, you know, bring in uh, different questions and different ideas, um, including um, patient uh, responses and patient satisfaction and things that, you know, I can't even think of right now. Simon, did you want to come in? Yeah, so one of the things that my understanding has come from this is the introduction of a, a patient safety fellow. So uh, kind of post core training level um, trust grade doctor who as part of their role will kind of champion the, this process and keep that rolling cycle running and then also head up the ongoing kind of training and development needs in the department. So so would I be would it be fair for me to say I'm sort of thinking about the sort of themes that came out of this work so there's something there I think uh, uh, Lucas described it nicely in terms of the, the the sort of safety culture if you like the organization but what you've just suggested there is actually the whole organization has has taken a view that the things that can be done here and, and going to invest a bit of time and uh, resources into improving that and then the other themes I've sort of picked up there's something about uh, the the uh, obviously the key bit around the training uh, uh, and and uh, who's trained and who's not trained something about the standardization of the documentation the availability of the documentation something about the communication of the message amongst all of the teams about actually what you're trying to do uh, and some of those uh, difficulties you mentioned around um, beds being occupied uh, when you're trying to keep an area uh, uh, ring fence for this are, are very relevant to us all and then finally there was the interesting bit which I hadn't really considered at all which is around stock control and actually how you can use some of these areas perhaps to to or trigger or target these areas specifically to help with the this process embedding that this safety culture in this process have I missed any other key themes that you sort of gather from that? Um, no, I think that covers it really well. I mean, I, it, it was interesting to see how much fell out of what was initially just introducing checklists for some invasive procedures. Um, so actually looking back on it, it was much bigger than we ever anticipated. Yeah, so, sounds great. And and what advice would you give to so so all of our trainees, all of our consultants? I actually just did a recent talk to some of our QI people about audits I've been doing as a consultant. And 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 you don't stop doing this sort of work when you become a consultant. Uh, and of course, uh, people see this as almost like something that they have to do to to continue up the career ladder, but it's not really that way. It's around continuous learning. So I just wonder what what sort of advice you you'd give to trainees who are thinking about embarking on an audit or a bit of a QI project. What 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 did you sort of challenge yourself with and, and, and what did you learn yourselves? So I think a, a kind of maybe minor point but actually has made a huge difference along the way is that audits and projects that are big and can take on big issues and make big differences but need you to have a team of you doing it are kind of much more satisfying processes. It's really easy to get involved in little snapshot audits and multiple cycles where you take on a, a little task or a little challenge by yourself and do it. And you end up putting a lot of yourself into that um, to not get much back from it. Whereas bigger projects like this that involve multiple people but take on bigger issues end up being much more rewarding for not much more, if sometimes even just a little bit less work because of the amount of people involved means that the momentum for big projects like this can carry on because it's not dependent on your road and your other commitments but between a group of you you can keep pushing and keep edging forward to make these big changes happen 
Yeah, that's really good. Any any other reflections from? Yeah, I was just going to add to the, to what um, Sim said. Um, you know, I think you know when I joined this project, I was in the acute medical uh, unit. You know, on my acute medicine rotation, and um, I think being uh, choosing a topic or finding um, a team already looking at something that you're potentially passionate about. Um, you know, this 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 project is is part of the acute medical department, but we've got three um, anaesthetists here um, involved, and you know, I think there's there's a re there's a re there's a real um, it was very obvious this this had a, a real link to anaesthetics and um, bringing um, yeah, as we've already said, uh, the learning from theatres to the wards. Uh, so I think. Um, being passionate about the topic is really important and whatever audit you do and that really helps <laughs> um you know when you're you're doing your data collection or um you know uh, trawling through through all of this and um yeah and also what sim said completely yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point and you know that passion because these things are they're not easy to do you've got to put a bit of yourself and time and effort into it and it's important to uh, you know it's worth doing and so pick one that makes a difference i think that's good comments there uh jez do you want to come in yeah just two quick reflections really i i mean i found it's quite easy to run out of talent quite early on unless you surround yourself with more talented people than you are so that was my first reflection. And the second thing is big projects uh, often garner quite a lot of um, feedback of the reasons why they're not going to work. And whilst I think it's important to listen, just because somebody doesn't uh, see your vision doesn't necessarily mean it won't work. Um, and sometimes you just have to get on and do it and make a difference and uh, and see for yourself. Yeah, as I like to say, a no is not a never. <laughs> okay, and and so if I just then ask the three of you perhaps to 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 summarise your take home messages of 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 what you found and what you want to sort of convey out to the to the wider uh, uh, healthcare communities, what would those be? I think a big thing that was highlighted in this is actually loads of the processes that we need to be in place to keep patients safe and keep the organizations running are often already there they may just be in a different part of the organization that you're working um and your little niche may not have come across that yet so this is a great example isn't it um the medical ward invasive procedure just hadn't adopted practices that are really well established elsewhere so the more kind of mdt approaches we can take to asking colleagues who maybe could take a look at our practices from their viewpoint and the lens that they work in there's loads of lessons that can be learned and transcribed across and you know medicine can be a bit tribalistic sometimes and maybe we don't do that enough yeah that's helpful any other thoughts lucas yeah i completely agree the phrase comes to mind is collaboration is key that sounds quite corny you know i think um you know, sharing the learning is really important. And one thing, you know, we, we're all keen to do is perhaps share share this across multiple um, departments, though that comes with its own challenges. Um, and also collaboration um, with multiple team, multiple people within the audit in order to, um, you know, bring together um, different skills and talents and different energies is really important to, to drive 
Thanks for it. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I'd just like to say thank you for for all of this work. Thank you for sharing it with us. A really interesting discussion, and uh, uh, you were a worthy winner of the uh, trainee poster uh, section. There's more information uh, about this project on the CPOC website. That's www.cpoc.org.uk. I'm just going to say any final thoughts from uh, uh, Lucas, uh, Simon or Jeremy, or we'll close it up there. Thanks uh, for having us. Um, okay. Thank you for having us.